Welcome to Meltemi, the Pichuleta Bagica podcast. Meltemi is a type of cold breeze in a summer's day, an unexpected yet very pleasant experience. Much like the wind, we want to explore the different directions our conversations will go. This podcast aims to be a breath of fresh air in a hot summer's day. We will be discussing all cultural forms from literature to poetry to philosophy to art in new and different ways. Further, like the magazine's motto, Art for Art's Sake, we are intent on showing you a new face to podcast. Cultural Obsessions is the first series we have launched, where we will be speaking to esteemed guests about the cultural figure, be it an artist, an author, a filmmaker, that means most to them. So without further ado, we welcome you to this series of conversations. Hi, and welcome, or welcome back, to Meltemi, the podcast um, on our section Cultural Obsessions. Today, we are very, very happy to have with us Ipanin Howarth who is an all-round superstar. Um, she is an editor at the Tulita Barca. She runs The Thread, which if you haven't gone through and read some of those columns, you should definitely do that now. And today she's come to speak to us about her culture obsession, who's also an author, called Romain Gary, the naturalized French well, author <laughs> of, the, of the Second World War. And she wanted to discuss him. So this is her time to shine. So welcome, Eponine. It's really lovely to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm going to talk. I think you, you sort of slipped on also because you did so many things. Yeah. <laughs> probably not sure what title to give him. Yeah, I did have a bit of a moment that was like, um, he's an author, but he's also other things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, French writer, basically during World War II, he joined the French resistance as a pilot. After the war, he was a French diplomat. He was a writer, so wrote while he was basically a diplomat. And he also ended up being a film director. So he directed a couple of films, which are objectively terrible, despite being a huge fan of his sort of literary work. I can't vouch for those. So that's a lovely introduction to a perhaps complicated relationship between you as a reader and him as your favorite author. And so today you instructed me to read two books, the play called um, La Bonne Moitié, which is like the good half, I think, in English. And then we yeah. read a novel which is translated in English, so you guys can read it, which is called The Talent Scout. Yeah, The it Talent was Scout. Actually it was actually written, we discovered, surprisingly, that he wrote it in English. So it's actually originally in English called The Talent Scout, and he translated it into French. Oh. And it's called Les Mangeurs des Toiles. Yeah. Oh, which that's is surprising. so interesting. So he wrote, he actually wrote, like, in English as well. I learned. I didn't actually, I didn't actually know that. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, there we go. And so I guess the way that I've started these with everyone is to ask, how did you discover Romain Gary? Is he someone that you read in school or is he an author that you discovered later on in life? Tell us a little bit more about your relationship with this author. So I think we probably read some of his, like extracts of his work at school, but under the name of Émile Ajar. So he wrote under sort of multiple names. But I, I'd never heard of Romain Gary, and I was basically <laughs> around sort of a table having lunch and someone mentioned Romain Gary and sort of turned to me as if 
I knew what they were talking about and I just really didn't. And so what happened is that after having lunch, I Googled him, um, just thought he had a really sort of interesting biography. So uh, being born in what was basically the Russian Empire, so born in modern day Vilnius and moving to France when he was really young with his mom, so moving to the South and then joining sort of joining the resistance during World War II, becoming a French diplomat, just sort of doing a thousand things with his life, which I found really interesting. And so I ended up reading sort of his two most famous novels first, Promise of Dawn and Life Before Us. Mm. I think that's how they translate. And so were you already interested in what he, in his books once you started reading them or was it, did your love for him come later on? I think I was hooked very quickly um, because I did, so I ended up just sort of buying all of his books and reading all of them in the end. But I think the one, and that's basically, I don't think, so the book we're going to discuss today is called so the talent scout and in French it's called I think the French title is better it's yeah I called, think you're uh, right yeah so it's called Les Mangeurs des Foiles which literally translates as basically the star eaters mm-hmm. and what I really like about the title is basically this idea of idealism so star eaters there's this duality of like star eaters could be sort of taking drugs and hallucinating and thinking life is different than it really is. And then there's this idea of star eaters as sort of reaching for the stars. And I think that's sort of what idealists are, like they're trying to reach for the stars. They want the world to be a different way. And that's sort of that's what I really like about the title. But basically I really got hooked with that one. And I think it was because it was the sort of final year of my degree in politics. And I came out of it sort of just in total despair, like political despair, <laughs> uh, despair about the state of the world, like everything that happened in, in the US, in the UK. Um, and I am sort of a naive idealist and an optimist who thinks the world can sort of get better mm. and humanity, like I have hopes in humanity and I think I lost hope in humanity. And I think that's what happened to Roman Gary. So that's when I read him. So I think it's the point in time when I read him, who I was, what I just sort of deconstructed all my prior knowledge, uh, prior beliefs about the world and coming out of my sort of my degree in politics thinking, oh my God, the world is doomed. Sort of yeah. the crit- spending three years sort of criticizing uh, the United Nations, sort of international organizations, which I'd sort of, laid a certain amount of hopes in them thinking mm-hmm. okay we can change the world with them and then realizing wait actually they they're so malfunctioning that mm-hmm. actually I have no hope for things getting better in the future and uh, I think that's that's when it hit and my oh my god he sort of was there to sort of I don't know just comfort me enough. in my despair probably <laughs> that's really interesting I think I think it's there's such truth in why an author appeals to us in a certain period of our lives and obviously all of our guests are quite young so I mean he included so we're still in the phase where we discover 
we may have had different authors that we've liked between adolescence and young adulthood but I don't feel like we've reached that point yet where we've had different phases in our lives and different authors have appealed to us but it's so true that some things you might be attracted to or they might fit in with like what you're living through that moment and that's such a fluid way of thinking of how literature can complement you rather than go against you so I think I think that's a very interesting answer um, for sure. I think a lot of people actually went through this phase of political despair and thinking like how can how can the state of the world be getting worse like surely I don't know there was a bit of a rupture with like what came before it felt that way and it felt like political boundaries were sort of being broken. So it's really interesting that you chose this book because as you mentioned, it's really not his most famous book. And, and it's such an interesting novel. And now that I've, well, read it, it's a very interesting style and it's got a very interesting prose to it. I think that for most people, I hope you'll enjoy it because it's completely fascinating in my opinion. Ipunin, do you mind like, telling us a little bit about the story? Yeah. Before I tell you about the story, I was going to say, oh, if tell you us. are reading Romain Gary for the first time, maybe don't start with this <laughs> one, which is a warning I gave um, Elo a bit too late. Um, <laughs> because I think you need to sort of understand what he's because doing. It's what he's doing. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just thinking, because everything's I- it's irony. He just uses humor just throughout. Yeah. And if you think this is literally what he thinks, then you're thinking, well, who is this asshole? <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You're just like, wow, okay. But yeah. Wait, so yeah, I'll tell you about the, the maybe the plot a bit. Yeah. Um, the story set in an imaginary Latin American country that's ruled by sort of a ruthless dictator who's called uh, Almayo. And at the beginning of the story, a group of guests arrive to the country, so including a famous American pastor, a talent scout, uh, and a group of acrobats. And they're being driven to the center of town together with the dictator's mother and the dictator's fiance. And for reasons that you don't quite understand at the beginning, the dictator decides to have the whole convoy of visitors shot including his mother and his companion. And so from that point, I mean, there's a whole discussion at the beginning with the captain, the Captain Garcia, whether he should execute the order or not, uh, whether the dictator is basically just being capricious and he's going to regret it the next day or maybe drunk or under the influence of drugs and will regret it the next day and have him shot for obeying an order that he should have obeyed. Or he's thinking, if I don't obey the order and he finds it out, I'll be shot anyway. So yeah. that's sort of the whole sort of discussion at the beginning. And then you're wondering, well, why would he have his mother and his fiance shot? And basically, we quickly understand that it's a means of maintaining power. So he's basically going to pretend that the rebels have done this that they've killed his fiance, they've killed his wife, they've killed a bunch of American citizens. And so he's trying to get, he's trying to delegitimize sort of the rebels, portray them as totally barbaric 
uh, for just killing a bunch of innocent people, including sort of acrobats and clowns, and blame it on the rebels and basically also get the support of the US because American citizens have been killed on foreign soil. So yeah, I think that's sort of the backdrop of the story. Yeah. But I was telling Elo, like, for me, <laughs> the story itself is not what matters. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> in the book is sort of the comical style of like how he just makes fun of everything and everyone. For instance, once he orders like this group of visitors to be shot, the clown starts protesting, for instance, and he starts saying, but this is unfair. I've never been involved in politics. Why should I be executed? Um, and they, then the clown starts saying that killing a clown would actually be a first in the history of humanity, that not even in the Russian October Revolution had a single clown been killed. So it's, it's just all a bit ironic irony and yeah but you know when I was to the first reading I took it just a bit very literally and I think that that was really I I think I think that yes the, the the warning that you've given the listeners is quite correct that like you should you should be aware of what kind of author this this is now that I've kind of come back to it and read it I just think that it's ironic but it's very witty it's not it's 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 a good story like now that I've reread like now I'm very invested I feel like I want to know what happens I I had like a bad like first hundred pages where I was like I don't really care about this at all but then but then it picks up and it it gets very interesting so the things that Eponine hasn't told you is that like eventually all of these hostages basically start telling you the story including this fiance who tells you the background of this of this dictator and and it's interesting because I feel like um especially when I went to school maybe we didn't talk so much about Latin America and there were things that we knew such as that you know the U.S. funded a lot of the extreme right parties but that was about it and you don't really realize it and something that you start learning um as you get older and maybe you develop more of an interest that like there's such a there's such a history behind all of this and and it was really I found it a very fascinating read and I think that anyone who's remotely interested in politics should read it Um, and if you're not then read it anyway (laughs) (laughs) but I think that I think you're quite right I think that's what attracted me to the to this novel in particular in the first place because I think it's the whole discussion about sort of politics autocratic regimes yeah um sort of how do they try to maintain power seek legitimacy and the thing is Romain Gary himself so he as a diplomat also used I think a lot of his experiences to sort of feed the stories of his novels so he was actually based I think it was in Bolivia for a few months uh, when he'd just been sent to Los Angeles he was the general consul there. Then he spent a few months in a couple of Latin American countries. He started his career in Bulgaria as well, when there was sort of still the Soviet Union. Yeah. So yeah, I think he basically used a lot of his sort of insider political knowledge to yeah. write his stories. I mean, that's interesting because also, like, obviously, our listeners probably won't know you, but um, you are quite 
uh, like multifaceted person. You're always busy, you're always doing. And I kind of see like the appeal of Roman Curie because he's had like four or five careers and, and, you know, you're more or less on the same path of, of multiple degrees and very different things and interest in poetry and literature and in cinema. And it's all of this, you know, all of these things that maybe one person would just choose two, if one, if not one, <laughs> go into that. And you've kind of cultivated this. And it's interesting that you would choose an author like this who's ironic, but also has something to say. Because I think that maybe, you know, one time we were talking about Romangari and you told me that like you don't think he writes that well and you don't think his stories are very good but like clearly <laughs> there's an appeal but with him so we're not really talking about the the story as much in in what you like about him nor are we talking about the style so maybe elaborate a little bit more about what it is that you find fascinating and maybe you can read a few extracts if you have them yeah so what yeah that was quite you were really wondering why it made you read this book when I told you that it wasn't about the story like the plot I'm not particularly interested in the plot and he's not particularly he's very he just repeats himself across basically the novels were 300 and 400 pages maybe 400 and something pages (laughs) but he repeats himself again and again and again um it was I interesting because I, I think that you premised it with like, I don't really like him. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> why is this your culture obsession? I don't really understand. <laughs> no, I think it's, there's something quite touching about him. So Romagari, I think it's someone who, I don't know, was, I, I think as many sort of post-war writers were trying to come to terms with what had sort of happened during World War II and the Holocaust in particular. So he was of Jewish origin, for instance. And I think there's this whole sort of trying to understand how humans can just be so awful. Yeah. Sort of, and I mean, this is sort of the work of Arendt as well. We we spoke a bit about sort of preparing this, about sort of the, um, the banality of evil. And I think this is sort of, the running thread throughout his work for me is him coming to terms with the fact that inhumanity is is human, is a human thing. Um, and because I, I think the word in French is maybe a bit different because you say inhumain as if it's something that isn't human. So inhumanity isn't human and it's him coming to terms with the fact, well, actually it's human beings that commit barbar- like atrocities, barbarities, and there is no sort of good and evil, um, sort of this good, this is bad. Um, It's just, we're just so fundamentally flawed as human beings, if that makes sense. And I think this is sort of the running thread through his work, um, which sort of attracted me. I think it's also because I grew up so in terms of my background, I sort of had to study, my parents wanted me to study German at school because there was this whole sort of process of Franco-German reconciliation. And that was sort of so important for my parents and for my grandparents who had gone through the war. 
And also my parents would take us like on holidays, we'd go to sort of memorial sites. So I spent a lot of time sort of in Germany and Poland. Yeah. That's quite intense. I'm not surprised your brother works in museums now. Yeah, became a historian. (laughs) (laughs) No, but an irony as well in the fact that, I don't know, when I was sort of 10, we basically went to Nuremberg to visit Nuremberg um, and the memorial there. And with my parents, it was always, I mean, we're like 10 years old and you sort of have to sort of understand what happened. It was really important for them, sort of, let's not repeat history and let's educate ourselves about what happened so it doesn't happen again. Um, And so the morning would be sort of visiting the memorial in Nuremberg and then the afternoon would be sort of going to the Playmobil Park opposite because we're kids so we should it's just so I think that sort of played with me as a child and I think now it sort of reflects in in the authors I like reading I don't know that's so interesting that's so fast so maybe this is yeah I've known it putting for like over nine years years nearly oh my goodness that's such a long time um but I didn't know this about you it makes a lot of sense because obviously you then decided to study politics and then that kind of your interest through that was developed you developed an interest in other things as well which then led you to complete another degree in law (laughs) which is (laughs) which is particularly interesting um but it's what I've always liked about this kind of thinking about books and literature is that you then you can see really the impact in in life and I guess in your life this has a very specific history so that's that's quite unique really so we've talked about irony um we've talked about Roman Gouri the author in terms of the interesting little facts about his biography and some of the books that you've read and you know the multifacetedness of this author so I was just wondering if there were little extracts that you perhaps could read so that we could get other people to read him and perhaps have you know their own opinions on him and tell us that we're completely wrong and read him really wrong (laughs) for all this time (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so I have I've picked a couple of extracts Right. Um, so something I didn't mention earlier is the character. So the character of the dictator's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So is so she's actually an American citizen, and she's portrayed as this sort of naive idealist yeah. who um, sort of wants to help, sort of sees the good side, wants to see the good side of the dictator and how he's trying to help sort of his people. Um, and she's sort of convinced that actually um, he can change things for the better. And she's trying to help in that process. And actually that character is to some extent um, mapped on Romain Gary's second wife. No way. It's bad all the, all the characters are awful in the book sort of none of them come out and you think oh this is this is a really nice person like all of them are fundamentally flawed not very nice people yeah I'd say. I mean so my reading of her has been that so this character basically eventually starts telling the story of 
there's a big digression. So there's two moments of the story. There's in which they dip in and out, which is like the present time when they're going to get killed and then the past. And the past is told through this female character who, and also like kind of an omniscient voice, which tends to be the dictator. But what's interesting is that I just kind of saw her as perhaps just an, an idealist, but like also an optimist. It's quite funny. Like there's this one scene throughout the book that she keeps saying, so she wants to be a philanthropist, which is kind of ridiculous. And there's kind of like this white saviorish <laughs> behavior that, yeah. that is very much at the center of what she's doing. And so she's telling you, she's comparing America to, to um, this country in South America and saying, oh, like America's gonna save this country, blah, blah, blah. And then at one point she puts this emphasis about how she wants to bring culture into the lives of everyone. She wants to create the Museum of Modern <laughs> Art and like a a um a that's the that's um, the extract I picked. Oh, so let's jump straight into oh, it. Well, there we go. Um, there we go. Um, there actually it goes through sort of their number of extracts across a number of pages. Um, but I I picked one of them. Um, and so I translated it myself as I don't have a copy basically of the original in English. Um. But basically, it's so as Ella was basically pointing out, she wants to be a philanthropist. She wants to bring, quote unquote, sort of development to yeah. these um, <laughs> uncivilized people, which is it's like total. And that's where the irony comes in, because he's pointing out sort of the fundamental flaws of mm. um, this sort of neo-colonial approach. Um, I think he's criticizing at the same time what was it, what France basically had with their colonies and the like mission civilisatrice, so the civilizing mission um, of these people are barbarians because they don't have a muse like a museum of modern art. And I think that's where the irony comes in, where like if you don't pick that up, you're like, this guy's an arsehole. If that makes sense. Anyway, I'll I'll jump straight into it. Um, so it reads, um, she would see to it that the capital had a library and a museum of modern art. She considered the latter particularly important, especially from a psychological point of view, to show the government's willingness to break with the past. When she thought that the population had never heard of Braque and Picasso, or even the Impressionists, she realized how much their spiritual needs had been ignored. A museum of modern art was needed. It could be made compulsory for school children and workers. Peasants from remote provinces would be transported in military trucks. This would provide the spark that would perhaps provoke a true cultural renaissance. And then they go on to talk about uh, how the Ford Foundation and the Rockefellers are interested in, in giving money. And a bit further, sort of a bit later, they talk about how um, in New York, there's a, there's a, Sorry, this is actually a quote. In New York, there was a museum of metro, there was a Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim Museum, and it was easy to quench one's spiritual thirst uh, there. Um, and it's just, it's basically what you were saying. It's sort of this incredibly colonial vision that yeah. countries that, these countries don't have culture because they don't have Picasso and they don't have Black and they don't have other Western painters and philosophers. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because obviously like 
art is something I'm particularly interested in. So in the beginning of the book, they talk about this pre prehistorical art that you could find in the country. And yeah, which was one of the appeals for this young woman who was then back then a young American woman to come and help civilize. Um, and, you know, it's quite, there's always such a contrast with art because there's this reality that like the people who fund art, you know, the Rockefellers, they funded the you, MoMA because they were, their mission wasn't that pure. It wasn't to create modern art. And the fact that, you know, like Diego Riviera exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art was was kind of a way of buying the silence of um, other countries. So there's already this idea that the people who are funding these artists are trying to basically shut them up. Um, and so like the idea itself that she'd want to bring modern art into you know this country is just kind of ridiculous when they have issues like they don't have food they don't have schools they don't have a x y and z it's it becomes like a, a it's it's a, a weird idea that like culture would help you get out of a very messy situation when actually it complements your life rather than saves it yeah and i think i think all of that is is incredibly correct and i think that's also what Gary is sort of denouncing in the book because he's talking about so the fact she wants to fund a public library and then he also points out that 90% of the population can't actually read so <laughs> while it's all about the symbols so he's just pointing out like it's all about symbols and I think development what we call development studies for a while was all about symbols as well and it's actually just money really badly spent. And it's the same with sort of a museum of modern art. It's meant to be sort of, you know, the pinnacle of modernity, the symbol of being sort of civilized and cultured. And when in fact it does so little for local population, yeah. not only does it do so little for them in terms of their basic needs not being met, but in terms of so, sort of local artists, it does nothing for them because yeah. they're actually just, bringing in Picasso, Braque, that's sort of the examples he uses. Um, but you could say the same with sort of Van Gogh, um, Monet, etc. All these artists that we think of are like, that's, that's what art is, which is just incredibly Western-centric. And yeah. yeah, so I think he's denouncing, so he's basically trying to denounce that. Um, and there's another quote, actually, so later about the Museum of Modern Art that I quite like, uh, where he says, after all, it doesn't matter where you go to worship, in a church or in a Museum of Modern Art. And that quote for me resonates a lot of, I don't know, there's something quite ironic about museum of like museums of modern art, where we just like, people have nothing to do on a Sunday. So they go to a Museum of Modern Art. I don't know why like everything has to be in silence. Like it's like you have to concentrate on like the aura of the painting. Oh, dude, when I in fact, bit... like, yeah, go for it. I feel a bit seen here because I've just spent the morning at the tape written. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, there is something ironic about it, no? I, I don't know. There is, I, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I just like, I love, I love museums and modern art, but there is something 
yeah there is quite a lot of flash around them it's really interesting there's quite a lot of things that one can read if 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 it's of interest about um you know why something's a fad or like how fakes get introduced into the into the art market or um artists that you know at one point a guy who had sold um basically a fake statue like an invisible statue and it was yeah recently an Italian sculptor no yeah 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 and it was at one of the biennales or whatever and he'd sold it and then like the property was very weird thing so it'd be like how can you sell a property that is invisible and so there's quite a lot of irony yeah I think you're right huge problems for copyright as well as the lawyer (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna throw that in but invisible works, basically copyright. Now, copyright, basically there's this idea of you need fixation. So you can't copyright an idea because it's just an idea. You can only copyright the expression of that idea. Right. And basically there's a huge problem of like, well, how do you copyright something that's invisible because it's mm. not fixated? Yeah. It's like, there's no, is there an expression of the idea? Like, how do you yeah no it's, it's, yeah so anyway it's very problematic but actually like hearing you speak about Roman Gouy I can kind of see like your appeal to him because in a way he was a man not of his time he's a man that's necessary now um if you think about uh, how how bizarre our world is right now I mean the way that he's denouncing things um or say the sim- similar problems that have been talked about currently with you know movements that have happened throughout this year and the pandemic and everything so he seems to be kind of like an anchor for you in a way a way of thinking a way of basing off your yourself you know Ooh, is he an anchor I think he's he probably sort of soothes me in my despair like I have similar ways of thinking about things um and I think it's just sort of, I don't know. That's why I quite like his, not his style, but the fact he uses sort of humor to sort of get out of this sticky situation of just being in total despair of what, just realizing that the world just sometimes seems to not get a better place. Um, He was an optimist. Um, and he was quite optimistic about sort of post-World War II, um, sort of getting rid of, I don't know, genocide, just getting rid of mass atrocities. Um, getting rid of, of all of the bad things. <laughs> getting rid of all of the bad things and yeah. um, realising ultimately that, well, it's a bit hard to be optimistic about things when you see what happens post-World War II. Also, interesting thing, because also there was so the creation of the, the United Nations, sort of this... Um, all of these institutions that nowadays, all of these as we've inst- seen, unfortunately can't do very much in certain circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that... And he himself actually was, um, at one point, the sort of the French representative, I think, to the United Nations in New York, mm. and wrote a book... Um, basically denouncing under a different name because obviously as a diplomat you can just be like this is not working this is way too bureaucratic it's not responsive it's 
Yeah, it's yeah. a bit of a shit show. You can say that. But wrote a book about it uh, called uh, L'homme à la colombe, The Man with the Stove. Yeah, obviously, like I, I guess in the French, it also like the white dove, the symbol of peace. That's yeah, kind of exactly. the imagery that he's going for. But it's really interesting because I feel so. One question that I should have asked you right at the beginning is Have you read everything? I have a feeling that you must have, considering how well read you are, well versed in his prose you are. So I've read, I've read all his stuff. Under all of his so, pseudonyms? Yeah. So I've read all his stuff under all of his names. Um, and I've read all the biographies about him as well. Oh, so it's really a cultural obsession. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, Much it's more so obsession. than maybe the others. I could accept maybe not Facundo. I think Facundo is definitely obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> no, so there is an obsession. It's there. Also, yesterday, um, I actually went to where he used to live in preparation for the podcast episode. So you're based um, where? You're in Paris right now, right? I'm in Paris okay. right now. For and our I'm audience. Ready. For the audience. <laughs> Otherwise they're like, where did he live? Where did he live? So the where he used to live in Paris, he used to live um, 108 Rue du Bec. And he actually committed suicide there as well. So He committed spoiler, suicide? He committed suicide in 1980. What? Yeah. Yeah. So, but that, I think this is where he was, well, my interpretation is that he was fundamentally an optimist, but I think he'd, he'd sort of achieved what he wanted to with his literary work, his, um, his ex-wife, the American actress, Jean Seberg, committed suicide the year before, so he's probably a sort of I don't know. I think that probably had something to do with it. But fundamentally, I actually think he uh, just was so desperate about the fact that history repeats itself and that, like, humans just really suck. I think that's, that's my interpretation, but also maybe that says something about how I feel about humanity at the minute. Yeah, yeah. so you commit suicide. But back to the discussion have I read everything I have but I can never remember what I read so I could go back and read it and because I wouldn't remember I don't remember what I've read I can remember like maybe five of them but he's written like 30 novels I think but so and I can't remember of, sorry so you you remember you don't remember his novels or novels in general that you've read novels in general novels and films so sometimes I watch a film that I think I've never watched and like 30 minutes into it, I'm like, oh, I've seen this film. Oh. It's really tragic. <laughs> I know. It's like early sort of memory loss. But, no, but it's um, interesting. So with these conversations, I feel like I've learned quite a lot about how people read or think about books or think about culture in general. Like I have a very visual memory. So I'm, I have like an impasse. I'm too stubborn. So if I can't get through something, I just get stuck. Whereas I don't think many people have that problem in the same way. But like, I tend to remember what I read uh, very vividly. And maybe I don't remember everything, but I remember most things. So it's quite interesting that you would have like such a, so many opinions about an author and the way that you think about books and like the enjoyment of books, because you're an avid reader for sure. It's quite, it's 
fascinating, I think. I think I can, all I can remember usually is whether like the emotional impact of a book, like whether I enjoyed it or not. Mm. And usually where I read it, like if it genuinely had an impact, I can sort of remember what sort of point in time and space I read it, but I can't remember what's in it. So if you ask me what the plot is, I actually had to reread the book for this episode. And going through it, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't remember, like, yeah. things but, but that's going fair. this way. I, I think that's fair enough. Like, obviously, that, that's something that everyone struggles with as well. So you're not alone in that. It's more like, in general, there's some books you just remember very well. So if you don't have that, it's a very particular I, Or maybe not. I maybe really... I'm the odd one out. You never know with these things. <laughs> no, I think people, people tend to remember stuff they read. But then it also says something like, why do I read if I can't remember any of it? <laughs> I think I just do it for the, like, I enjoy the process. Hmm. But it's true that I sort of, it's a bit embarrassing when someone's like, oh, have you read this? And I'm like, yeah. Was it good? I can say, yeah. What was it about? I don't Bye. know. <laughs> and then they're like, how do you know if it was good if you can't remember sort of what it's about and I'm like yeah. well I can remember I enjoyed it but I can't remember I can't remember the characters I can't remember the plot I can like not even in a sentence I can tell you what it's about like I do not remember like blank wow and I spent probably five days reading it, you know I yeah. don't know well you're a fascinating human so <laughs> moving towards the end of this I've really enjoyed this I hope you guys have too um about this conversation are there little fun facts about Romangobi or things that maybe you haven't mentioned that you wanted to mention before we conclude? So you told me fun facts. I needed to pick up some fun facts. Yeah, or weird facts, <laughs> things that, you know, if, 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 if someone doesn't want to read all of his biographies, <laughs> if there's like fun things that, you know, that are like interesting quirks about the author. I have some. So he, he liked eating gherkins which is probably sort of as detailed a fun fact you can find. Then you I remember some... that. That's what you remember. You don't remember the plot, but you remember <laughs> that he ate some Kirkins. That's fine. <laughs> um, and then, no, I've got some sort of more intriguing and funny ones. Um, basically, his second wife, so Jean Seberg, the Amer American actress I mentioned earlier, she had an affair with Clint Eastwood and he challenged Clint Eastwood to a duel after learning that he'd had an affair with his wife um, which is like what challenging That's someone to style, a duel a very old style um, and then another sort of interesting fact is that he actually had dinner at the White House with uh, John F. Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy with his with his then wife, so Jean Seberg. Um, and I'm still trying to wonder, like, how sort of he pulled that one off. Like, how did you get to have dinner at the White House with John F. Kennedy? And they arrived late as well. They arrived um, late? How can you arrive yeah. late to the president's house? <laughs> I don't well, really understand. The flight was delayed, if I remember well. Um, so oh there God. you go. I am. Yeah. Um, my I've heard that he was um as well very 
particular. So, for example, that he uh, would write things in different pseudonyms to see if they get published. Yeah, so he did that. I think so. Uh, this is the probably the biggest fact about him is he won the um, the Prix Goncourt, which is sort of one of the most um, important French literature prizes. And he won it twice and you actually can't, you're not allowed to win it twice, but he wrote, so he won it the first time under Romain Gary, mm -hmm. um, and he won it the second time under the name of Emile Ajar, but no one knew who Emile Ajar was. And I think he was trying to detach himself from sort of um, all the prior works he'd done, because once you've written sort of 10 books under the same name, there's a certain expectation about um, the quality of your writing, what you're writing about. So I think he really wanted to sort of detach himself from that. And that's why he wrote with various pseudonyms. And we only learned sort of after his death that um, he was Emile Ajar, uh, which is sort of quite remarkable that he managed to keep the secret for so long. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. Also, interesting fact, he's not actually called Romain Gary. His real name is Roman. Roman Katsef, mm. um, and he basically changed his name when he was in France. Yeah, so he's just someone who constantly reinvented himself. So when uh, Roman Katsef, he went from to Roman de Katsef, then Romain, um, I think it was in that order. And then Gary is actually burn or fire in Russian. Mm. Random. Yeah, and so finally, is there a book that you've never managed to, or a, a film or anything that you've never managed to finish, but that you kind of go back to and wish you had? Wish I had? Um, there are many books I haven't finished <laughs> because I'm a firm believer that if you're, if you're not enjoying a novel, like you need to drop it. And you need to pick it up. You can pick it up again at a later point in life, but I just think it means you're sort of not, don't force Enjoy yourself, it. like yeah. come back to it at a later point in time and maybe it'll resonate then. But if it's not working, just don't. life's too short to read either yeah. bad books or books that you're not enjoying. Um, but I will say maybe ironically, I've never finished um, Les Miserables, by oh, Victor, uh, Hugo. Victor Hugo. Well, my name comes, so my very own name is a character in Les Miserables. And I read sort of two thirds of it. Um, it's a long book uh, and basically just didn't finish it. And I, I have no excuse, like I should finish. Like when you're, you're named from somewhere, like you should at least make an effort. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I will come back to that at some point in time. Also, just confessing this sort of to the audience is a bit embarrassing. But yeah. no, <laughs> I think everyone has one of those um, for sure. And I think it's well, part of like what makes everyone interesting is that there's a different book that, that no one's managed to finish. So yeah. So thank you so, so much for coming on to the podcast and talking about your cultural obsession. I definitely feel like we've learned a lot about Roman Gary and you. And I hope that you've enjoyed this and your audience, if you've enjoyed this episode, 
let us know what you think of Ramon Garib. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you had a good time. If you'd like to hear more, note that we are on Spotify and Apple Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about La Pichuleta Barca, have a look at our website, lapichuletabarca.com. L-A-P-I-C-C-I-O-L-E-T-T-A-B-A-R-C-A.com. And if you'd like to support us, we have a patron page. The intro music is from The Dreamers and the song is called Harbor Lights. You can find their latest album on Spotify and YouTube. Thanks again for listening.